0: Uh, Come on back with me to Proverbs, to Proverbs chapter 30. Uh, We have two more chapters to cover. Uh, We've been in that middle section that's just very topical, very thematic, and we've tried to work through the major themes. And now we come back to these last two chapters where we get some context. And so we come back to sort of a verse-by-verse style of looking at the book of Proverbs. And in Proverbs chapter 30, uh, verse 1, we are introduced to a person that uh, we've not met yet before. Remember, there's all sorts of people in Proverbs that we've met before along the way. There's the wise man, there's the foolish man, there's the sluggard, there's the adulterous woman, there's all these different characters, right? There's a, there's a, uh, a significant cast that we are introduced to in the book of Proverbs. And here, uh, in chapter 30, verse 1, we are introduced to a new person. Uh, chapter 30, verse 1, if you're looking at it there, the words of Eger, the son of Jekai, the oracle. Now, um, just a footnote on this, uh, there are um, some textual problems here, and uh, Garrett, you've probably seen this in your Hebrew Bible there, but um, th- there's there's some discrepancy about what this means. You, you can actually, uh, the, the way that Hebrew works, you can actually have uh, some very different readings um, of this chapter 30, verse 1 verse. Um, Some of the translations, the ancient translations, like the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, um, the the Latin Vulgate, and some other versions do some weird things with this verse, all trying to figure out what it means, and um, I'm not here to try to solve that because uh, good scholars disagree, but if we take it in just its uh, straightforward fashion, what we have here are the words of a new Wise man, a new author. Now, th- this shouldn't freak us out because we know that the book of Proverbs is largely written by Solomon. The vast majority of it is written by Solomon, but we have other places where some other authors are introduced. And uh, just out of, for the sake of your curiosity, the way Proverbs went together was: uh, you remember Solomon ministered in you know the 10th to 9th century B.C. in that era. And he was the wisest man that ever lived, the Bible tells us. God granted him that special gift of wisdom. And so uh, God took that wisdom and inscripturated it in the book of Proverbs and also in the book of Ecclesiastes and uh, Song of Solomon, also penned by Solomon, um, But so, so that we could benefit from that. But along the way, um, th- there was somebody after Solomon's time who actually put the book together in its current form. And as a part of that, that... That divinely inspired editor who put this book together included some other words of wisdom by other inspired authors as well. And we get to meet one of them today. And then uh, in chapter 31 here in a couple of weeks, we'll we'll meet King Lemuel. Um, so that's where we're at. The words of Egar, the son of Jekai, the oracle. And it says, The man declares to Ithiel... To Ithiel and Ukal, which means uh, you just learned four new words today, right? Um, Agar and Jachah and Ithiel and Ukal. and uh, those are probably names of people. There's a way to understand them a little bit differently, but uh, those are all legit Hebrew names uh, in the ancient day. So the first question we really have to ask here um, is: uh, is who's is this Agar guy? Agur, Egger, however you want to say it. Um, so we're going to call this the God-inspired observations of Agur. Um Actually, it would be Agur in Hebrew, if you want to pronounce it like a Jewish guy, Agur. Um, so, uh, and you'll see why we're calling it the God-inspired observations here in a minute. But but who is this guy? Um, someone raise your hand here uh, with some ideas. Who is Egger? Who is he? That's right. Yeah, very good. Yes. We have a Bible scholar in our midst here. Uh he flies airplanes by day, but he's a closet Bible scholar, I guess. Uh, uh yes, he is the son of Jekeh. That's right. All right, who's he? Yeah, well, well the yeah, the the, the oracle would refer to what he's about to write. That that's going to be the the saying, the um uh just to say a book would be too strong, but um Okay, so what are we talking about here? Who's this guy? And I'll save you some time. The answer is we have no idea. Um, I, I did the research, man. There, There is just nothing on this guy. I mean, his file is clean. And, uh, you know, no no crimes or felonies in the ancient... No, no. Um, yeah, we have no idea who this guy is. And, and it's interesting because um, there may be a divine reason why we don't get his biography here. And so maybe you can detect that as we go along but we do know a little bit we do know his dad's name was Jakah or Jaka um, and uh, these are his oracle the words of Agur his oracle and then we, we get this this little statement here the man declares to Ithiel to Ithiel and to Ukal. so if you remember with me that the book of Proverbs is mostly a father who is writing and ministering to his children, right? It's Solomon sitting down with his children and unfolding the things of the Lord, calling them to trust the Lord and to walk in His ways, to learn wisdom. It's possible, and this is just one of several theories, so I just, I'm throwing this one out just for your consideration. It's possible that Agar is the father and his sons are Ithiel and Uchol. That's one possibility. We don't know that for sure, but that would fit with the overall theme. It could be... You know, like, you know, Larry Moe and Curly. Uh, it could be, um, and some of you have no idea who that is. Ask your parents, okay? Um, but, um, so, uh, but in any case, we, we have this divinely inspired author, and that's why we need to remember these are the, the God inspired observations of a Just because we don't know much about the human author does not mean that God cannot powerfully use that person. And, and just, maybe that's just a good, applicational moment. Um, The reality is uh, God uses ordinary, normal, and largely unknown people to accomplish his works. And that is his glory to do that. It is humbling to us who are the nobodies of the kingdom of God, and it is his glory to use the nobodies uh, in divine and powerful ways. So... Um, so his god inspired chapter highlights his observations of people and other aspects of creation. This is where it gets really interesting. Um, most of the proverbs have these little punchy sort of you know nuggets of wisdom that you can just put in your pocket and think about for the rest of the day and, and you will you will find a never ending uh, meditation in terms of the wisdom and those things. You're going to notice in this man's chapter, he writes a little bit differently than Solomon does. He's going to make some observations about life. And, and, that's, and that's what's interesting. Wisdom, as we know, is divine truth applied to life, right? That's wisdom. It's divine truth applied to life. And one of the things that we need to remember about wisdom is that wisdom is not always saying, oh, here's what I do in this situation. It certainly is that. But wisdom is an ability to look at the world. Listen very closely. Wisdom is the ability to look at the world and to evaluate it from a divine perspective. Whether it's a Supreme Court justice nomination. Whether it is a hurricane, a Category 4 hurricane that hits the Florida panhandle. Whether it is a local city crime that you read about in the Hood County News. Uh, whether it is some family situation going on, and you'd say, "Oh man, my grandparents never had to deal with this." Whatever it is, wisdom is an ability to look at the world with a divine or godly or biblical perspective. It, it, wisdom is like is like getting a new pair of glasses. You know, maybe, maybe many of you wear glasses. Maybe some of you wear contacts also. And and maybe as you were going through that process, you're like, man, I'm not I'm not seeing it so well. You know, things are kind of blurry, and I don't have that distance vision anymore. And and you finally you you've been putting it off for months, right? You finally go to the eye doctor, and he he hooks you up to that thing that you're sure is trying to trick you. What's better, one or two? One or two, right? And I I think they're trying to trick you on that because it's like they look the same. But anyway, so they hook you up to that deal, and then they dial in a new prescription. And you go, wow. I can see, right? And, and, and learning wisdom is kind of like that. Anytime you go to the Word of God, it's as if God is adjusting. What, what is that thing called? The, the the little device that they used. To, I'm, there's a name for it, and it's too long and too many syllables for me to remember. But there's that little machine, right? When we go to the Word of God and we read it and we meditate on it, we renew our minds. God is adjusting the optics of our spiritual perception and he 's helping us to see more clearly, he wants us to see life from his perspective, and being able to see like that is gloriously helpful isn 't it so so that 's what 's going on here, and that 's what we 're going to learn from from Egger is this divinely inspired observations on people primarily and on the world and it 's really interesting uh, we 'll make some some really helpful conclusions, I think, there. okay. So the section we want to just look at today as we get introduced to this gentleman's observations, his divinely inspired observations, is uh, just found in the first six verses. So I'm going to read that to you, and then uh, as is our custom, we'll, uh, we'll break it down one verse at a time. Chapter 30, verse 1. The words of Agar the son of Jekai, the oracle, the man declares to Ithiel, to Ithiel, and Ukol. Verse 2. Surely... I am more stupid than any man. How'd you like to start your book like that? I mean, seriously. You know, God's inspiring this. He's like, that's the first line. Really, God? Yeah, really. Okay. Surely I am more stupid than any man, and I do not have the understanding of a man, neither have I learned wisdom, nor do I have the knowledge of the Holy One who has ascended into heaven and then descended who has gathered the wind in his fists who has wrapped the waters in his garment who has established all the ends of the earth what is his name or his son's name surely you know verse 5 Every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words or he will reprove you and you will be proved a liar. Implication every time. Okay. All right. Come up for air. Look at this here. Uh, We start off with what we might call a man's ignorance, a man's ignorance. Now, what what does he mean here? What what on earth does this mean? Um, Surely I am more stupid than any man, and I do not have the understanding of a man. Neither have I learned wisdom, nor have I the knowledge of the Holy One. Take a stab at it. What on earth is he talking about there? Yes. Yeah, I appreciate that. And some of you may not have heard that. Brian said it, it's really an expression of his, his humility. And that's true. That's absolutely true. Um, you know, obviously God inspired this, but at, at, we know nothing about this man yet. But right out of the gate, we know he's a humble man. And one of the things that we've seen, and you need to mark it here, we've seen over and over and over and over in the book of Proverbs, is the wise man is first and foremost marked by a humility, isn't he? Because right out of the gate, back in Proverbs chapter 2, we'll look at this in a minute, it is the Lord who gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. And we recognize that, that we come into the world... Because of our fallenness, we come into the world sort of hardwired in competition with God. We came into the world thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. Now, that's not something that happens in college. You can see this in any two-year-old. You can see this, right? Because that two-year-old will fight, will argue, will scream bloody murder when you cross his or her desires, and, and those of you that aren't parents yet, just, just trust us on this, okay? Those of us that have, that have been around the block of parenting a couple of times. You don't have to teach a child to do that. They come into the world fallen with that... Um, it, it's weird. They're cute, but they are rebels. They are opposed to God. And that's why the, the height, the height of foolishness, according to Psalm 14, verse 1, is the fool says in his heart, what? There is no God. It's it's living in a delusion of autonomy, right? It's living like God doesn't exist, like I am the source of all knowledge and all wisdom, and I'm just going to do whatever I want to do. I'm going to do what I want in life. And that that immediately collides with the reality of, of God's revelation that God alone possesses all wisdom and knowledge. And, and we really are just stupid. Now, now, let me qualify that for a minute. Um, when Edgar says, I am more stupid than any man, I do not have the understanding of man, he's not saying that, that this guy doesn't know anything, right? What he's saying is, I, I think he's he's really saying two things. One is, in light of where he goes, in comparison to the Lord, <laughs> I don't have a leg of wisdom to stand on, do I? But we also know, and this is what we're going to see as this chapter develops, is that if God very kindly gives us an ability to know things, but everything that you know comes from God. You say, well, wait a minute. You know, I learned some stuff in college. I learned some stuff growing up. How does that come in from God? Well, who made your brain? Who made your ears? Who made your eyes? Who gave you an ability to learn? Say, all that's God's equipment. We, we just, God just says, here, you can borrow my equipment. Now go learn. But it all comes from God, right? It's all him. Everything is from him and through him and to to him, to to quote um, the New Testament there. So so Edgar starts, uh, Brian is absolutely right, he starts in a place of humility to see yourself as completely ignorant before the eyes of an omniscient and all-wise God. And listen, all proper wisdom starts with that posture of humility before God. How do we know that? Chapter 9, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? Chapter 1, verse 6, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And that fear of the Lord is a posture of humility, submitting to and trusting in the God who knows all and sees all and is all. Okay, so I think that's something of what he's trying to tell us here. He obviously has something to say because he doesn't say, I'm stupid, I don't know anything, the end, he, does, he doesn't do that. Now, he could have done that, right? But it's, I, I, I'm, I'm stupid. I don't know anything. I've not learned wisdom. I don't have knowledge. But watch where he goes. But there is one who has ascended and descended. There is one who... This is crazy. <laughs> I'm getting ahead of myself, okay? But we see that, okay? So, so who gives wisdom and who gives knowledge? Edgar is pointing us to the one from whom all those things come. So on your notes there, let's catch up a little bit. Who gives wisdom and knowledge? We're going to see that in verse 4. It's not intrinsic in people. Yes, God makes very, very smart people, have very, very smart brains and experiences and all that. But all of that, look on your notes there, is derived. What that means, we got some, we got some smart young people over here. What that means is everything that you guys know and can do and can build and can... Do an athletic, all of that comes from God, who gave you those abilities. You say there's natural abilities and spiritual abilities. Yeah, we can make that distinction, but everything comes ultimately from God, right? And um, you know, you know, to, <laughs> uh, to to attack the God who gives you those things is a bit like cutting off the branch that you're sitting on. That's the way C.S. Lewis put it, or the way I like to put it is, you know, the atheist. Uh, is kind of like the guy who goes to to Sears, to the tool department at Sears, and he buys a Craftsman saw and a Craftsman uh, drill and a Craftsman uh, rotary driver, and he dri- he he buys a Craftsman scroll saw, and he's he's, he's got the complete mechanics toolkit of Craftsman, and he goes out on the highway here and he builds a big sign that says the Craftsman company does not exist. We go, w- why would he do that? I mean. It, 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 it took craftsmen for him to build the sign. And that's what the atheist does, right? He uses the tools that God gives him in his intellect, in his knowledge, in his ability to learn, to try to somehow prove that God doesn't exist. It's crazy. So, so we start out with a posture of humility, and, and that is all, all wisdom starts in this, this fear of the Lord, this humility that we see in Agur. So we don't know who he was, but he was a humble guy. Okay, And any wisdom, any knowledge that we have is derived from God. Now, so who has all knowledge? I'm glad you asked that question. Look at verse 4. Who has ascended into heaven and descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped the waters in his garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? And we are reminded here about who God is. Now, I... Egger's intention here is for us to walk away with a small view of ourselves. We're stupid, actually, all things being equal. But to walk out of here with a big God complex. I mean, brothers, we serve a big God and we forget how big he is. We forget how great he is because we just kind of get caught up in things. And in our fallenness, we're prone to think way too highly of ourselves but let, let me, let's look over the shoulder of Edgar here and, and grow in our appreciation of who this God is and what he's like, okay? So th- this reminds us, Of Job 38 doesn't it and if we had some more time we would read Job 38 you remember Job has had this horrible tragedy after tragedy and then his friends come to try to minister to him and they they throw a theological wrench in the gears of life and and everything starts unfolding and Job's upset and the friends are upset and 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 it, it 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 pinnacles with Job crying out to God saying you have done wrong And you need to make this right in my life. I am suffering unjustly. And then there's a knock at the door and Job chapter 38, God speaks out of the world, but God shows up and He says this, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the world? Tell me if you have understanding. Do you know what time, Job, the mountain goats give birth? I do. Where were you? Tell me. And we think man it 's kind of harsh god i mean he 's just lost all ten kids and he 's had this chronic illness, but the reality is to accuse God of wrongdoing is no small misdemeanor it 's a capital offense felony in the eyes of god but god 's strategy is to remind Job of who he is, and we need regular reminders of that as well so let 's just let 's just look at this. Um, who has ascended into heaven and descended? Now, these are rhetorical questions, but you're, you're supposed to be answering them in your head, okay? So, who has ascended into heaven to know all the riches of the wisdom and knowledge? Who's done that and then descended and revealed that to us? Yeah. Are you thinking Jesus at this point? You should be thinking Jesus. Okay. We could we could actually title this section the Gospel According to Proverbs or maybe the Gospel according to Egger, Because it's it's very Christ focused as we're gonna see here. Okay? Now the point is, um how many of you have been to the East Coast? Been to the East Coast, the United States? How many have been to Europe? Southeast Asia? Okay? Africa? <laughs> South America. Okay, he's a pilot, he's cheating. Um, <laughs> International pilot, yeah, it's uh, okay. How many of you have been? Okay, let's up the. Ante- how many of you have been to the moon? That's just a handful of people, isn't it? Right. Brian. Brian. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's applying for SpaceX uh, piloting. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so how about this? How many of you have been to heaven and back? Anybody been to heaven and back? That's what the author's saying. Before we get all Mr. Smarty Pants here. Who's been to heaven and back? Who has who has sat in that arena of the one who knows all things and made all things and, and is all wise and is all powerful? Now, why would he say that? Because he starts off saying, I'm stupid, I don't know anything. And there's some of his readers. Now, now I know teenagers are never prone to do this, to, to think more highly than they ought to think about themselves. Do teenagers ever think that they know more than they do or they, they might think that they're smarter than they really are? Talk to me, parents. Here. Has that ever happened occasionally? We're going into those years, so I need your help here. Okay? And, and what, listen, what Egger is doing is brilliant. He's saying, okay, all right, you, you think you're so smart, I think I'm pretty stupid in the eyes of God, but have you been to heaven? And then come back so you can tell us what it's like? Of course not. How about this one? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Now, hold your place there. Just flip back to Psalm 104, verse 3. There's some good stuff here we got to look at. Psalm 104, verse 3. This is a great psalm about God's power and wisdom in creation. We'll start in verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a cloak. Now, how do we know that God is great and and clothed with majesty? Well, listen to this. He stretches up the heavens like a tent curtain. You ever done that? You ever set up a tent? Or maybe more applicable would be the the window coverings in your house. You ever done that? Sometimes it can be a little complicated. Well... That's what God compares himself to here when he stretched out the whole heavens, the whole universe, as it were. It's like putting up a pair of blinds. Verse three. He lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. Watch this. You're not going to believe this. He walks upon the wings of the wind. He makes the winds his messengers, flaming fire his ministers. That's God. That's how he thinks about the wind. That's how he thinks about his creation. Or Psalm 135, verse 7. He causes the vapors, meaning the water vapors, to ascend from the ends of the earth, who makes lightning for the rain, and who, listen to this, he brings forth the wind from his treasuries. You say, no, 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 Keith. Wind's about pressure differentials, right? You got high pressure, you got low pressure, you got wind, right? Well, where do those pressure differentials come from? Who, who is creating atmospheric pressures that result in a, listen, that result in a weather pattern that is sustainable for human beings? There's no other planet in the universe, as far as we know, that has that characteristic. Well, who does that? Who makes that? Who sustains that? Okay, two, a couple days ago... One hundred and fifty five mile an hour category 4, almost a category five hurricane slams in to the panhandle of Florida. And if you've seen the pictures, the video like I have, you go good night. That, the, the, the devastation is overwhelming. We remember uh, Harvey last year down in the Houston area. Uh, you, we've seen tornadoes here. We've seen tornadoes in Oklahoma, in the Middle East, in the uh, Midwest um, we see the power and the magnitude and, and, and the, the, the energy that's involved in that. I mean, it's, it's overwhelming to think how much force and energy and power you can't even quantify at all. And our verse here says, God holds that in his fist. 155 mile an hour winds and worse. God's like, yeah, it's like picking up a baseball to me is that amazing? I mean, that, that's, that's who we're dealing with here. Is someone who can literally harness the wind, walk on the wind, command the wind. You remember, remember Jesus in the boat? The disciples, experienced fishermen, are freaking out. We're going to die. Lord, save us. We're perishing. He gets up and he says, stop. And the wind obeys him. And the disciples say, as we ought to, who is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Edgar's not done. Look at the next part. He gathers the wind in his fists. Who has wrapped the waters in his garment? So my science question for you this morning is, how much water is on the planet? Do you know? A lot, A lot that's right, yes. Yeah, it's about 70-71% of the surface, right? But then we're thinking, uh, and of that 71%, you know, most of it is, ha- like 90 some percent is housed in the oceans, but we also know there's water vapor that makes up our atmosphere. And as the, actually, interesting, the Bible talks about the water that's above the expanse, water that's below the expanse, back in the Genesis account. Well, that's water vapor that's above and the water that's below in terms of underground water. If you put all that together, I did some, some uh, research here for you in case you're curious. 332.5 million cubic miles. If you were to take all the water... That's available above, on, or under the earth, and turn it into a a sphere, a ball of water. It would span from the west coast all the way three quarters across the United States. It's just, it's overwhelming to think about how much water is available here. And look at what our text tells us. He has wrapped the waters in his garment. So he just—I get the idea. He he takes that 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 jug of water that is three point three hundred thirty-five point five million cubic miles, cubic miles, right? Mile, 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 right? Cubic mile, and and God just goes, "I'm just going to slip that in my garment and head off to the store." <laughs> Who is this? There's no one like this. God. Uh, Job tells us in Job chapter twenty-six. Uh, verse eight. Listen to this. You're not gonna believe this. This is amazing. Twenty six eight. He wraps up the waters in his clouds, and the cloud does not burst under them. He just he just wraps up the waters in the clouds. That that's what we think of the hydrological uh, hydrological system. Uh, God just does that. You know, like he's going for a walk or something. Job thirty eight verse eight. Who enclosed the sea with doors when bursting forth? It went out from the womb. Thinking about when God created the heavens and the earth and He walled in the seas so that it created the modern oceans that we know today. Psalm 135, uh, verse 7. We just looked at that. Let's look at it one more time and think about it in terms of water now. 30, 135, 7. He causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth who makes lightnings for the rain. Yeah, he's involved in the whole electrical system part of this thing, too. You know, the whole electromagnetic spectrum, every every form of energy that we have in creation is under his divine control. So so what I'm saying is all that science stuff you guys are learning, you you know what science is, right? Science is modeling with math, usually, the way God runs his universe, right? Looking at all the chemicals he uses to do that, all the forces, all the energies, you know, marine science, physical science, earth science, we're we're inspecting God's creation and learning to put math equations on how He runs it because He runs it with such precision. So He he controls the water. He, He just picks up... All right. And we go, man. He's not done. Look at this. Chapter 30, verse 4. Who has established all the ends of the earth... Psalm 104, verse 5 says that God established the earth on its foundations so that it will not totter. Back in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 19. Actually, go ahead and turn there. It's just a few pages back. Hold your place there in in chapter 30. Turn back to chapter 3 for a minute of Proverbs. Let's remind ourselves, because we learned this early on in the book, talking about God and His creation. How did God create the earth? How did He do it? Chapter 3, verse 19, he spoke it, verse 19, by wisdom. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth, and by understanding he established by heaven, the heavens. By his knowledge the deeps were broken up, and the skies drip with dew, and he goes on. And notice what he says there, verse 21, my son, let them not vanish from your sight. You need to keep these things in mind, son. And and that works for old people too, like us, doesn't it? We need to keep these things in mind. This is our God. How big is the earth? 24,901 miles all the way around, if you walk on the equator, all the way around. It's huge, it's massive. And God established it. Who is, so, so let's hear it again. Who has ascended into heaven and descended? And that's not me. Who has gathered the winds in his fists? Who has wrapped the waters in his garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? Everybody knows this. His name is Yahweh. His name is God. The creator of the ends of the earth, the king of kings, the lord and lords, the divine sovereign of the universe. There's only only one person who qualifies with this job description. And then he says this, very interesting. What is his name or his son's name? And that is just totally out of place, isn't it? And yet we think, think of all of the ways in the New Testament now that we know that Jesus Himself, the second person of the Trinity, was the one who was actually carrying out the orders of His Father to speak creation into existence. Colossians tells us, Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1 both tell us that it was Jesus who spoke everything into existence. And it is Jesus who even now, sitting at the right hand of His Father, is upholding all things. Jesus is the divine person of the Trinity behind the curtain of God's sustaining creation. Wouldn't you like to see that schematic? Wouldn't you like to see that, that control room, right? Jesus, I want to see the control room where you run this whole universe. Well, that's what He's doing. Except He doesn't do it with a computer control room. The Bible tells us He does it by the word of His power. Who is there who speaks and it comes to pass? But the Lord, right? So why his name, his son's name? Well, that's very interesting. Well, let me just let me just share this with you. Hold, hold your place there. Turn to John thirteen, or John chapter three. John chapter three. I love this. This is so good. Isn't this fun? Have you caught this before? This little nugget of proverbs. Um, I confess that I did not fully appreciate this until I had to dig in and start studying it. Chapter 3 of the Gospel of John verse 13 What qualified Jesus uniquely to be the second Adam to be our representative and, and to accomplish the work of redemption What what allowed him to come and say no one John says no one has seen God at any time but this incarnate word right this this guy who shows up he has explained the unseen god now what qualifies him to do that listen to john chapter 3 verse 13 no one has ascended into heaven but he who descended from the heaven who is the son of man well gee that kind of sounds like proverbs 30 doesn't it we see uh, just flip over to the right a few more pages to Colossians chapter 2. This, this is crazy. This, this is good stuff here. Um, look at Colossians chapter 2. And listen Listen to how this verse has Proverbs 30 as its backdrop. That There's definitely the same imagery going on here. What is his name or his son's name, the Scriptures ask. Listen to Colossians chapter two, verses one to three. For I want you to know how great a struggle I've had on your behalf for those who are in Laodicea. This is Paul writing to the Colossians, and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together. Uh, I mean, knit together in love and attaining. Now, listen to this: to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding. Resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery. Follow very closely now. That is Christ Himself. Watch this. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That is a key element to understand. This whole book, brothers and sisters, this whole book of Proverbs, of wisdom and knowledge, Where does that ultimately source from, according to this verse? It comes from Christ. Now, Christ has not been named explicitly in the book of Proverbs until now. And we see here, you guys understand, God designs revelation to unfold. It's like a good novel. It's like a good movie. And God doesn't tell us everything up front right he wants us to keep reading he 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 plays this out in the course of what we call salvation history and yet he gives us these little nuggets about the the seed of the woman that will come and crush the head of the serpent and and things like that the the suffering servant of isaiah 53 and right here we see this amazing picture of of this incomparable god whose name is great but who has a son And His Son is instrumental, not just in this creation that we've seen as made and is sustained, but in the unfolding of the very wisdom and knowledge of God. As He comes, the second person of Trinity, God incarnate to reveal God in a way that humanity has never seen before. And Paul reminds us, by the way, it is in Christ that are in whom are hidden all the riches and knowledge of wisdom. We could call this the gospel according to Egger, couldn't we? We call this the gospel according to the Proverbs. It's just a hint, right? We need the New Testament to fully appreciate what we're talking about. But Egger's like, what's his name? Oh, and he has a son too. And there is a connection. What I want you to see, guys, is there is a connection between all of the wisdom and knowledge that we have learned in Proverbs and the person and work of Jesus. Now, Proverbs has not fully realized that yet. We need the New Testament to see that. But there is a connection. And that's what Egger is trying to help us to see. Okay, back to Proverbs. The gospel according to Egger. Okay, so there, there, this great God, this God who runs weather systems and, you know, pockets the, the 155 mile an hour winds of a Category 4 hurricane, he just pockets it like a baseball. He he houses all 335.5 million cubic miles of water and he just slips it in his garment uh, like he's putting his pocketbook away. And he runs this universe. He made this universe. He sustains this universe. And it is this God and his Son in particular in whom are hidden all the riches of wisdom and knowledge. Now, if that doesn't put you in your place... You know, we think with Job that maybe God was being kind of harsh on him. You know what? It is—it is, it is kind. It is unspeakably kind when God pulls the rug of our own pride out from under us and humbles us under His mighty hand and His great name. It is—it is spiritual suicide to live in the self-delusion that I know that I'm wise that I'm righteous, I'm autonomous in and of myself. That's that's the path that leads to destruction. So we need to be thankful for those times when God humbles us and shows us otherwise. And and for the young people in the room and the old people, we need this too. Notice what he's doing. He's saying we have to reject and repent of this desire to think that we know what we know and we're okay on our own and we are all wise in ourselves and we have all these gifts and talents that are really just derived from God, graciously given on loan from God. And the beginning of wisdom is to walk in humility, loving this God, depending on this God, trusting Him, and leaning on Him for all things. So young people, old people, that, that, that's where we need to start, is in this humble posture of dependence on God who is great beyond all comprehension. Now, if we're stupid in ourselves, and this is a great God in whom are hidden all the riches and wisdom and treasures of those things, there's no hope for us, is there? There's no hope unless this all-knowing, all-wise God condescends to reveal himself to us, right? There's, would you agree? There's no hope unless he somehow reveals, nod your heads, give, give me some signs of life here, guys, okay, it getting warm in here. Okay, thanks Mr. Slaughter. So, that's true. So 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 look at where he goes. Look at verse 5. What's the next what's the next subject Egger brings up? It's it's contextually connected. We don't know anything. God knows everything, and our only hope is if he reveals himself to us. And guess what? He does. Every word of God is tested. God has revealed himself to us through his word, and that word is tested. Anybody have a different version? Every word of God is. What does your Bible say? Flawless, Flawless pure. pure. Someone else proves true. proves true. Okay, and and anytime you see diversity, that means the translators are are not real sure what the best word is. They're trying to get at it. The word actually means refined. It it means there has been a purification process. This is the the Hebrew verb that's used to describe. The purification of metals, and I'm not an expert on those things, but you understand when they would mine some precious metal out of the ground, that it was um, intertwined with um, impurities, like lesser metals. And there had to be some sort of purification process where it was heated and the dross was pulled away, that the lesser, uh, less expensive metals were separated from the more valuable metals, the gold and the silver, the bronze, other things like that. Yes, that's the cross-reference. You got it. That's right. Yeah, Psalm... Um, you say 12, 6, and 7. That's right, yeah. In fact, I've got that here in my notes. So good job on that. So um, here's the progression. Man lacks wisdom, verses 2 and 3. God alone possesses wisdom, verse 4. And we find that wisdom in His tested Word. So Psalm 12, 6 that our brother just quoted uh, for us. Expands. It uses the same word, but it actually develops the metaphor. It, it develops uh, the typical context of the words. Let me read it to you. Psalm 12. The words of the Lord are pure words. There's our, our word. As, as silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will preserve Him from this generation forever. The Word of God is tested it's refined it's pure as some of your versions say now you know what that means practically you don't have to open your bible and say i got to find the errors i got to find the because everything's like that right the newspaper is fraught with factual information that's incorrect you know we, we read historical novels that aren't quite right we watch movies you know you watch you know aviation movies and and you know pilots laugh at them because there's so much of aviation things that are wrong. You see that in every realm of culture. You don't have to do that with the word of God because it's been pured, purified. It's refined. You don't have to come to it wondering. And notice this. Did you catch this? How many words of God are like that? Some of them? 90%? 95%? Do I hear 99%? The Hebrew is explicit here. It's really interesting. It's a weird construction. It's every single word of God has been tested. So, so think about that. Um, I was talking to somebody recently and they told me that their pastor their pastor, wasn't really sure about the historical reliability of the first couple of chapters of Genesis or frankly the first 12 chapters which would include the flood narrative also. Your pastor told you that? Well, I, I like what John MacArthur said in response to that argument. Well, if you don't accept the first 12 chapters of the, of the Bible, where do you start? And, and are you setting yourself up for a sort of Thomas Jefferson approach to the Bible where you just cut out the parts that you don't happen to like? Or you don't happen to believe in? I mean, th- think, think of the cultural challenges we're facing today about uh, homosexuality, transgenderism, Uh, how we think about abuse cases, how we think about issues of morality and ethics and and all of this. And and I'm here to tell you, every word of God is tested. You can take this to the bank. Everything it says. It doesn't matter if it's popular or unpopular. It doesn't matter if you're the only person, if Christians are the only person saying that. Every word of God has been tested. And so much so, listen to this. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. This God who is great and awesome and amazing and who has revealed himself in his perfect, pure, inspired, and errant, authoritative word That's that's such a that is the only reliable foundation that the writer says you can take refuge in him. Meaning you can go to Him to rely on those things. You can trust Him with your very life and anything in your life. There's no problem too big for Him. There's no circumstance too hard for Him. You can go to Him and He will be a shield to you. A shield of protection. God is a refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. It doesn't matter, Psalm 46, it doesn't matter if the earth is melting away. If you're, if you're standing on the foundation of God, if you are hiding in His refuge, no one can touch you. You're in the safest place in the world. I love that. Every word of God is tested. He is a shield. There's some references there where God has called that He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. Proverbs chapter 2, verse 7, which we saw many months ago, says this. Do not, or excuse me, um, He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity. What's biblical integrity, by the way? What's biblical integrity? Yeah, yeah. What's that? Yeah, walk with you. And you may catch the connection to integrity here. Why is he a shield to those who walk in integrity? Because biblical integrity means I trust this God and I'm living in light of his word. I'm obeying his word. God says, I'll be a shield to you if that's how you're living. Last point. Um, And we we see the metaphor of taking refuge in him. Look up Nahum chapter one. That's a great cross reference to look up sometime. So here's the final thing. Don't mess with his word. We like to say don't mess with Texas out here. Shouldn't mess with Texas. But you know what's worse? Messing with his word. Look at verse 6 of Proverbs chapter 30. Do not add to his words or he will reprove you and you will be proved a liar. Revelation chapter 22 verses 18 and 19, the, the last book penned, the last canonical book penned in biblical history says, do not add or take away to this book. Jesus writing through the pen of the Apostle John. Do not do that. Now, how do people add to his word today? Talk to me here for a minute. We'll we'll, we'll quit here in just a moment. But I want you to tell me, what are the ways that people today are attempting to add to the word of God? God God told me. Yeah, mysticism. Mysticism is where people think that God communicates in that sort of still small voice of their hearts and just sort of through their emotions and stuff like that. That's not God. That's called mysticism. So, you know, God told me to divorce my smelf. God told me to take this job. God, you know, that's, that's not how God operates. We add to his words when we believe that God communicates outside of his word like that. Okay, what's another way? Yeah, visions, dreams, sort of the same sort of things. Traditions. Rationalizations. There you go. About books about God. Do we have some other religions that have actually added to the Bible? Sure, the Mormons have done it. They added the Book of Mormon, the Doctrines and Covenants, and the Pearl of Great Price, what they call the four-fold books. Catholics. The Catholics have the extra books in the Old Testament, plus they've added tradition. They've canonized tradition to be on an equal level with God and the Scripture. You heard of Science and Health with Key to the Scriptures? Mary Baker Eddy, the founder of Christian Science. Okay, and then... You know, all sorts of other religions, pagan religions uh, that would compete with Scripture, whether it's Islam or uh, an Asian religion of some sort. So I want you to see that th- this is a very clear and present danger, isn't it? I mean, this is a contemporary danger, and that's why. Notice, we have to start with humility, right? We don't know anything. We have to see God as as glorious and as knowledgeable and as wise as He is. We need to see His Word as the vehicle in which we learn that knowledge, to stand on it, to believe that every word of God is tested and thus reliable. We take refuge in Him on that Word. And we do not, do not, do not ever add to God's revelation in our ignorance and pride because every time, what does Egger say? God will reprove you, and you'll be shown a liar in the divine court of God. <sighs> yes. I have a question about the, we hear every day that the, the oceans are going to cover the earth. Right. The the earth right. And all yeah. Yes, the Bible says God all that. He's over all that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate you saying that because just very quickly and we'll quit. You know, the, the Bible entrusts human beings as stewards of the earth, right? That's what it means to be a, um, uh, uh, to keep the earth, to use the language of Genesis chapter 1. And so we do have a stewardship. We're not supposed to go and just be fast and loose with God's planet. We ought to use it in a wise way. But at the same time, you know, uh, some of our environmentalist friends would say, you know, they're looking at creation without the divine sovereignty over that and and uh so they would be looking at it in an incorrect way um you know i remember john MacArthur years ago said if you think we're destroying the planet wait till you see what jesus does to it um now he was saying that tongue in cheek that's that's not again that's not licensed to just go be reckless with god's resources but it does remind us that we need to remember who runs the universe so i appreciate that all right guys lots to think about let's pray Father, thank you for your great name and your great ways and I pray that we would just walk out this morning uh, having notched you up in our minds just a few more degrees, that we would trust you more, that we would love you more, that we would turn away from worldly thinking and we would stand firmly on your word and know that to be taking refuge in him is the safest and wisest and most restful and joyful place we can be. Father, guard us from adding to your word. Help us to guard others who may be tempted to do that. And might we just once again walk away standing in awe of who you are and what you've done. Make us faithful in light of what we've learned from these these verses this morning. In Christ's name, amen.